0: This is the Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. The topic of today's talk is a discussion on diabetic research. This is a big topic, so we want to focus from what we really know from all the papers and evidence and what really happens on ground. Uh, why is it so hard for patients with diabetes to really get the care they want uh, to get to the goals that they achieve for and what is really happening in the community joining us today is dr rosalina mccoy she's associate professor of medicine in the division of community internal medicine and she also leads the northeast northwest and the southeast community internal medicine as well as she's a medical director of the community paramedic program She works both in the Division of Community Mental Medicine and also works through the Robert D. and Patricia E. Kern Center for Science of Healthcare Delivery. So we have a unique expert today to talk on this area. Thank you for joining us Dr. McCoy.
1: Thank you so much Dr. Ghosh.
0: Dr. McCoy, your work has been dealing with understanding the different delivery care delivery models which provides high quality evidence-based patient-centered care. You're also dealing with methods of finding out very equitable diabetic care. For our large community of physicians, uh, could you explain to me why your research is so important, especially in the field of diabetes?
1: When we think about diabetes, it's really one of the most common conditions that we all deal with as clinicians, you know, as members of a community. One out of every eight Americans is living with diabetes today. So it's very common. We also know how to treat diabetes. There's uh, highly effective medications that both lower blood glucose levels and also reduce risk of cardiovascular disease, of kidney disease, you know, heart failure, and reduce mortality. And yet at the same time, we know that uh, nationally glycemic control has not improved despite availability of uh, these medications. The rates of complications and the rates of mortality have also not been improving over the past few decades. So that really creates a disconnect. You know, why, despite all of the advances in the science of diabetes management, why is that not translating to better health outcomes for our patients? And for me, working in a primary care practice, I think that's especially important because primary care physicians, we kind of are the boots on the ground for caring for patients with type 2 diabetes, often with type 1 diabetes and also with all the comorbidities and the psychosocial complexities that come with living with diabetes. So I think it's important to really understand what is happening and what are the barriers to translating the science you know, from the bench side and from clinical trials into real-world practice.
0: I have seen several patients who actually have been accused by their physicians. They said, you are not taking your medications, your glycohemoglobin is high, if your glycohemoglobin does not come down to seven or or less in the next three or four months, you can find another doctor. That I thought was very cruel, understanding that the patient is doing everything on their side to get the control and yet not able to do so, uh, which actually relates to the complexity of diabetes and our failure at different areas to figure out what is going on. Our contemporary treatment practices uh, that your research has dealt with. Has uncovered a lot of problems, and I would like you to talk about the phenomenon of under treatment, over treatment, and the misuse and the under and the overuse or underuse of glucose uh, lowering medications. And also, more important is, what do we know about these different medications which have come? Especially, the term which is used these days is comparative effectiveness of these different uh, medicines. Okay.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's, you know, you raised so many really important points. You know, when we think about diabetes management. I think when I first started working in the field, I was really interested in hypoglycemia or low blood glucose levels. Because what I observed in practice is that so many of my, especially older patients, were experiencing hypoglycemia. It and they often viewed it as something that's just the consequence of diabetes management. It's something that they have to live with because as we as clinicians have been stressing the importance of lowering blood glucose, lowering hemoglobin A1c, we've really come to have this aversion of hyperglycemia without the concurrent aversion to hypoglycemia, even though the data shows that hypoglycemia can be fatal in the short term and in the long term is associated with increased risk of mortality, increased risk of cognitive impairment or decline, the same micro and macrovascular complications that we see with prolonged hyperglycemia develop in patients who experience frequent and recurrent hypoglycemia. So just like high blood sugars are really bad, so are low blood sugars. And yet our patients and so many of us as clinicians have aversion to hyperglycemia and accept and tolerate hypoglycemia as kind of an unnecessary evil in the treatment of diabetes. And I think that's what led me really to enter the field is trying to understand who is at risk for hypoglycemia? How do we individualize therapy? And how do we really pursue appropriate therapy? While we're trying to avoid hypoglycemia, we also don't want to go too far the other way. I think all too often as we try to avoid one of the extremes, instead of stopping in the middle, we we tend to go too far and kind of yo-yo back and forth from hypo and hyperglycemia, both as a field, you know, focusing on lowering A1C and then we focus on not lowering it too much. And then for the individual patient going from poor control with hyperglycemia to poor control with hypoglycemia and and kind of back and forth. And I think that's kind of how I personally transition from looking at over treatment to looking at appropriateness of therapy. And how do we really figure out one, what is the best treatment for the specific patient in front of us? And two, How do we help our patients achieve it, both for the individual patients and then on the health system and practice levels? And what we really found is has been, I think, disappointing for me as somebody who treats patients with diabetes every day, what we found is that the patients who are older, who have high disease burden or low limited life expectancy. Those are the patients who do not derive long-term benefits from intensive control because you really need five, even 10 years in order to derive meaningful benefits from intensive control. And that's you know, hemoglobin A1C levels of less than 7% usually in most uh, treat-to-target trials for type 2 diabetes, so a core advanced VA study in UKPDS. Now, these same patients are at highest risk for experiencing severe high hypoglycemia with intensive treatment. Now these patients in real world practice are in fact the ones who are treated most intensively. They achieve lower hemoglobin A1c levels than younger and healthier patients and they do so more often while treated with insulin therapy or with insulin secretagog therapy such as sulfonylureas. So exactly the medications that cause them to have that hypoglycemia. On the other side, young and healthy patients who are the ones who have the time horizon to derive benefit from intensive glycemic control, they are the ones who do not achieve recommended hemoglobin A1C levels. And that's not only because of the complexity of their disease, which often is the case, but up to half the time, young and healthy patients with hemoglobin A1C levels of above 9 or 10% they're not even treated with insulin. They're not treated with sulfonylureas. They're not treated with multiple medications. So there's really so much opportunity for those patients to intensify their therapy, improve their glycemic control and prevent diabetes complications short and long-term with much less risk of hypoglycemia uh, compared to the older adults. So there's really this disconnect between treatment intensity, so how much we lower A1C levels, the intensity of the modality of treatment. So are we using intensive insulin therapy with our patients? So the ones who benefit from something aren't getting it and the ones who don't benefit and yet are harmed are getting it. So I think as we talk about patients not being able to access their diabetes medications or diabetes therapies, it's not just about access, it's about this profound disconnect that patients who need it aren't getting it and patients who don't need it as much and are potentially even harmed by it, they're the ones getting it. So we need to realign our care to get to the patients who really need it and who wouldn't be harmed. And the problem extends even further beyond just age and um, clinical complexity to really reveal the disparities of this because this risk treatment or benefit treatment paradox is most profound in lower-income individuals and racial and ethnic disparities, such that low-income individuals are much more likely to be undertreated, and they are much less likely to be receiving the evidence-based medications that we know reduce the risk of complications, and the same thing for Black patients um, in the U.S. So I think we have this paradox of delivering care and these disparities, Really, the hard part is figuring out why that is and what do we do about it? And I wish that I had the answers for both. I think it's something that we've so many people are, I think, working on and are trying to figure out kind of why we're seeing what we're seeing and how best to address it. But I can definitely tell you that it's going to take a village. It's going to take really a a multi-pronged approach by individual clinicians, by healthcare systems, by regulatory agencies, and really by payers to make it easier, I think, for us as clinicians to do the right thing and for our patients to get the right care that they need.
0: So I've seen several articles from uh, 2013 onwards. They all focus on this topic of comparative effectiveness Mm -hmm. uh, because this question comes about, should it be insulin should it be some of the newer medications or the time-tested metformin what do we know about from the evidence about the comparative effectiveness at what number would you say some of these medicines are comparable in effectiveness but your choice might be different because of the cost how would you approach this uh, whole big box of comparative effectiveness
1: yeah that's a really hard question it's, it's something that i Know talk to my patients about actually all the time when the decision comes to intensifying therapy and what to do. I think the first thing we really need to realize is that when we talk about comparative effectiveness for or even effectiveness, right, of of treating diabetes. And here I'm talking about type 2 diabetes, because with type 1 diabetes, I think our the choice, it's not really a choice of therapy, obviously, because those patients need insulin in order to survive. There, it's a question of insulin delivery and glucose monitoring technology we'll kind of leave that as a separate issue, but for type 2 diabetes, where we have a wide range of non-insulin medications to choose from, there's really two things we need to consider. So one, diabetes is a disease of hyperglycemia. So we do need to think about how effectively do different medications lower blood glucose levels and lower hemoglobin A1c. That said, hemoglobin A1C obviously is not, it's a surrogate measure, both of glycemic control and also of long-term complication risk. So as we think about lowering hemoglobin A1C, I think that's kind of the big picture, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we really are talking about blood glucose and we need to avoid both hypo and hyperglycemia. Like I tell my patients, their hemoglobin A1C may be fantastic, but if their blood sugar is either 40 or 400, that's not actually that great. I think not losing track of glucose when we think about glycemic control. So that's part one, glycemic control. Part two is complication risk. So reducing the risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular events, so heart attacks and strokes, heart failure, kidney disease, eye disease, neuropathic disease, uh, lower extremity complications. The relationship between those and hemoglobin A1c level is actually not as clear and as strong as we think. Based on the treat-to-target trials, we know that Hemoglobin A1C levels of anywhere between 7 and 8% are where we should strive for most patients. For very young and healthy patients early on in the course of their disease, there is a legacy effect from controlling their glucose levels more intensively early on because we see those benefits, you know, decades uh, down the road, no matter what happens to so their glycemic control later. We know that from the long-term follow-up of the UK PDS trials, as well as some observational data analysis that were done. So for early on, I think we do need to control A1C more intensively if tolerated without hypoglycemia and without severe burden of treatment, obviously. But for most patients, I think the data suggests that somewhere between 7% and 8% is just fine because we need to prevent the acute complications of hyperglycemia and we need to prevent the long-term complications of micro and macrovascular disease. So when we compare medications, we think about, well, which one is going to get us the glycemic control we need? But at the same time, from all the cardiovascular outcomes trials, we also need to think about preventing those complications independent of the A1C, because our patients, even though they want to lower their blood sugars, they also don't want to have heart attacks and strokes and go on dialysis. And that's where I think comparative effectiveness is much more important, because all diabetes medications lower blood sugar levels. Some do so more effectively than others. But when it comes to preventing long-term complications, not all medications are created equal. So we know that GLP-1 receptor agonists are very effective at lowering hemoglobin A1C. They also reduce the risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular events, mortality, and kidney disease. SGLT2 inhibitors also improve kidney disease outcomes and prevent heart failure hospitalizations and uh, mortality. DPP-4 inhibitors are kind of moderate in terms of glycemic control and tend to be more neutral for kind of all these complications. Metformin reduces macrovascular complication risk, does not appear to reduce microvascular complication risk. We actually have a study hopefully coming out soon um, showing that. And obviously reduce A1C. Sulfonyl reduce A1C. They do not have complications benefits either. They do cause hypoglycemia. Insulin lowers blood glucose levels, causes hypoglycemia, but it doesn't have any kind of bearing on complications outside of the glycemic control. But that said, insulin obviously is the most powerful way to reduce blood glucose levels because there's really no ceiling to how much you can lower glucose levels. And I think these considerations is what makes diabetes management so challenging because On the one hand, we have a lot of options, but on the other hand, there have been no head-to-head comparisons in trials of these classes. And PCORI actually just funded four teams, including ours, to look at comparative effectiveness of the four commonly used um, second-line diabetes drugs to figure out which ones are better head-to-head. The GRADE trial just announced their findings comparing sulfonylureas, insulin, GLP-1 receptor agonists, and DPP-4 inhibitors, uh, really only with respect to glycemic control. They were not powered to assess for outcomes. They also did not include SGLT-2 inhibitors in their trial because it was started back in 2013 when those medications weren't even available. We know that for lowering A1c, GLP-1 receptor agonists are most effective of four that were studied in GRADE. And from the cardiovascular outcomes trials, we independently know the impacts, the associations with kind of the the heart endpoints and the diabetes classes. The decision ultimately, I think, for our patients comes to trade-offs. The medications that guidelines recommend for patients. So if you have heart disease, you should preferentially get a GLP-1. If you have heart failure, you should preferentially get an SGLT-2. If you have kidney disease with proteinuria and a preserved GFR, so above 45, you should get an SGLT2, else you get a GLP-1. Once you do that first one, you go to the second one if you need to intensify therapy and then so forth. But then the problem arises that both of those medications are extremely expensive. And that's where I think the discussions with our patients really start. And what's most painful for me as their doctor, because most health plans have at least one drug from each of those classes as a preferred brand name drug. They're only available as brand name. And yet, due to the way that our insurance plans are designed these days, the way that health plans disincentivize their use is not by tiering, because clinical evidence says that these medications should be covered, but by cost share. So through shifting from copayment to coinsurance, so that in pay, instead of paying a fixed amount for a brand name drug, you pay a percent of the list price of that drug. These medications are becoming unaffordable because if you think about some GLP-1 receptor agonists, the list price is $1,100 a month. So if you're coinsurance for a preferred drug on your formulary is 20%, 20% of $1,100 every single month. And that's after your deductible. And about one third of people with employer sponsored health plans have high deductible health plans. So that's even worse. So most people just can't afford the preferred drug that is guideline recommended and evidence-based for them. And then we're stuck really using medications that lower blood sugar levels, but do not have the same benefit. We're using sulfonylureas, which cause hypoglycemia and weight gain. We're using, again, thiazolidine diones, even though we can't use them in patients at high risk for cardiovascular disease and and they cause weight gain, but at least they don't cause hypoglycemia and they're affordable. So it's it's a challenge uh, because the medications that are best are often out of reach for our patients. And I think it's hard to have that conversation with patients, but it's also a conversation we must have because we, we as clinicians should not be prescribing a medication to our patients that they will not be able to take for two reasons. One, it's not fair to our patients and two, it's not going to help them. You know, a medication that's going to work is the one that they can afford and the one that they can take and the one that they can tolerate. So it's important to do the legwork upfront to help our patients afford it. And we can do that. We can do that by finding out what's on formulary by making sure that all of our patients who have commercial insurance get the manufacturer savings cards for whatever drug you're prescribing. Unfortunately, with that patients who have Medicare Part D, that when they when it's time for open enrollment, you talk to them that it's open enrollment and they should check which plan is better for them. If they're on insulin and it's open enrollment time, they should make sure they get a Part D plan with capped insulin costs because not all Part D plans are capping them and you have to kind of opt in. Patients who are low income, if they're eligible for medical assistance or Medicaid, they should get it because then their medications will be covered. If they aren't eligible for medical assistance, but they're still low income, manufacturers have assistance programs that you fill out the paperwork and they can send patients the drugs um, at a reduced or low cost. It's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of prior authorizations. So it's helpful to have a system for it. You know, I work closely with a pharmacist to help patients with that. You know, we have Epic. I have smart phrases for every note to automatically put in kind of a blurb to preempt prior authorization requests about how these drugs are evidence-based and this is the standard of care that should be covered. So there's things that we can do to help our patients afford medications, but it's, it definitely creates a lot of administrative burden and frustrations for us as clinicians.
0: I remember early on uh, seeing a lady, a black lady who was admitted DKA, and then uh, the intern was lecturing uh, the patient how she should be taking her insulin, and she was very quiet. She didn't mention anything about it. But down the line, this day two, day three, when she got better, we figured out that she had to choose between food for her kids, two children, she was a single mother versus taking insulin for herself. So even type one diabetic with on insulin, this was a big issue for her and that was causing her DKA. She knew exactly what to do, but she couldn't do it because she had to make this difficult choice. And A lot of time patients um, when they're sitting in front of us, they don't want to show that they can't afford or whatever They, they put up a brave face, but it takes somebody like you and, a lot of time to figure out uh, whether they can really take the medications. You also mention a term, burden of management. This is only for diabetes. There's one medicine and a lot of diabetics have heart disease, hypertension, this and that. So they end up with four, five, six medications for different reasons. And everybody's trying to do the best. They give their own evidence-based uh, medications for the patient and it adds to their burden of mm-hmm. uh, care. So. Is there any effort to make a poly pill or something which, at a fixed price, they get something like you have a heart medicine, cholesterol medicine, and a diabetic medicine in one?
1: It's a good question. So I think a couple of things. So first, I I, I do want to go back to the point you made about your patient with type 1 diabetes who wasn't able to afford their insulin. I think it's really important to recognize how common that is. It affects patients with type 1 and type 2 diabetes, patients with and without health insurance. You know, one out of every four, I think, people who are treated with insulin have to ration their insulin. That's a lot of patients. If you think about, you see, you know, four diabetics in a day in primary care, or, you know, 12, 15 diabetics a day in endocrinology, if every one out of four of them cannot afford their insulin, that's staggering. So I think the first thing we need to do whenever we meet with our patients is really normalize it for them to admit when they are struggling. Because our patients really are working hard. And I think they, a lot of view it as a personal failure if they can't do what we ask of them. And what we ask of them in diabetes is often a lot, just like you said. So I think even using language that makes it okay and easy for them to admit when they're struggling is very important. So I usually ask my patients, I kind of say that right. These drugs cost a lot. How are you able to afford them? Because many people can't. And phrasing it this way gives my patient the freedom to say, you know, I struggle, I ration my insulin, or I borrow from friends. I mean, the amount of black market diabetes medications and testing and administration supplies that are being sold on Craigslist is just incredible. It's so sad to see, but really understanding what it is that our patients are living with and what it is that they're doing. Because very often I find that we can help them if only we know what they're doing. For patients with type one diabetes who can't afford their insulin, I think talking about do we need to switch from analog insulin, which is what pretty much everybody's treated with to human insulin. Human insulin is not ideal, but it works just fine. You know, it's it's a little bit harder to dose. A lot of, I think, especially younger clinicians don't have a lot of experience with human insulin, but we can treat type one diabetes with human insulin just fine. They do it all over the world. The key is knowing how to dose it and telling our patients it's a different type of insulin and they can't switch back and forth. Cause that's where I think a lot of patients with type one diabetes run into trouble when they can't afford their analog insulin and they go to, Wal- to Walmart and they get insulin rely on, which is human insulin, and they don't work with their clinician to change their whole regimen, instead kind of just translate from one type of insulin to another, that's when there's a risk of both hypoglycemia and DKA, because they're very different insulins, but we can use them safely and effectively. But to do that, we need to know that our patients are struggling. You know, Minnesota has pass legislature to make sure that all patients can afford can get insulin as an emergency. And that includes analog insulin. So that's fantastic. And I hope more states do what Minnesota has done. Many payers all over the country are capping insulin costs, which again is a very important first step because it is a medication people need to live, but that doesn't help patients with type 2 diabetes who need non-insulin medications really to live as well. So we need to figure out what can our patients afford? What can we help them with? What are the workarounds? And if we don't know, we can't help them. So I really hope our patients can tell us and that we ask them specifically. And we know the clinicians don't really have those cost conversations with our patients. And then for the poly pills. So there are poly pills in cardiology that have been developed and tested in trials. In diabetes, you can definitely get, I think metformin and sulfonylureas come as combinations with pretty much everything. There are basal insulin and GLP1 receptor agonist combinations as well. I sometimes use the metformin other drug combos to decrease the pill burden. I don't use the insulin GLP1 as much because. It really decreases the flexibility in dosing and what you can give. But for patients in whom the doses work out, that can be very helpful because, again, it's easier. You give the injections together and it can be more affordable, especially when they get the savings card. But there hasn't been as much of a push, I think, for a polypill for glucose lowering therapy, in part because of how much variation there is in what our patients need and also in how much those poly pills I'm assuming would cost. But it is very important to think about all of our patients' regimens and simplify them as much as possible because often I think our patients are on non maximal doses of their drugs so we can maximize things before adding new things. But diabetes, type 2 diabetes is hard because it has, you will need multiple medications to manage it. And patients have all those other comorbidities that have to be managed as well. So making the regimen work for them is is really important.
0: So Dr. Mukha, you and your team are doing like stellar work. I mean, your work has been prolific, uh, published numerous articles in a very short time on almost every areas, but can you just summarize what is your area of work, especially when it comes to improving care of diabetics? which are the main areas that uh, your team, you and your team are working on and you have published.
1: The overarching goal really, right, is to figure out how do we deliver care that our patients need in a way that they can get it. To do that, we actually have, have to do a lot of the legwork to figure out what the problem is and identify problem areas. And a lot has been of observational research and describing the problem and trying to understand it. Uh, but the overarching goal is really to figure out what do we do better? What do we do differently? So I think over the past uh, few years, we've moved on to also doing some, so we're doing comparative effectiveness study now, uh, we'll be starting funded by PCORI, looking at the second line diabetes drugs. And then we have a couple of trials for different care delivery models for diabetes. So we developed here at Mayo uh, Rochester and the Mayo Clinic Health Systems in Southeast Minnesota, a primary care kind of nurse-led interdisciplinary diabetes management model to help engage and really support patients with diabetes within primary care and leveraging the expertise of our nurses, our pharmacists, our social workers, our nurse educators to kind of develop a systems-wide approach to supporting patients with diabetes. And we also have two trials now using community paramedics to work with patients with diabetes, both one is focused on uncontrolled diabetes and high a1c the other is focused on patients who've experienced severe hypoglycemia and community paramedics are really an incredible profession of pre-hospital providers they're uh, paramedics with additional training um, and specialty expertise in primary and preventive care and what we do in these programs is community paramedics care for patients in their home to see kind of what is their life like with diabetes and they really help address both the clinical complexity of the disease, providing diabetes education, connecting patients to primary care. But also those social aspects, you know, dealing with diabetes distress, helping patients identify ways to afford their medications, connecting them with social and community resources, tackling food insecurity, housing insecurity. You know, though both trials are recently started and they're ongoing, but the early data suggests that it's working really well. We've been able to engage patients uh, for pretty much every patient, find ways to provide them with more resources. And even one month. Kind of a community paramedic intensive intervention sets, really ch- changes the trajectory of their diabetes management and re-engages patients who suffer diabetes burnout and um, diabetes distress back in their care and can be successful. So I think the biggest lesson from all of those programs is that Like I said earlier, I think it it takes a village. We as clinicians cannot take care of patients with diabetes alone, Mm -hmm. and they can't manage it alone because it's a very challenging and hard and multifaceted disease. And I think health systems and payers really are increasingly recognizes that we need to support our patients better and do it differently. And figuring out how do we do that, I think, is, is the big focus of our work and so many others.
0: Just give me an idea for uh, maybe a town of 25,000 people. How many paramedics would you need, knowing the fact that the prevalence of diabetes is what it is? Because you know, so a- our
1: community paramedics can see, depending on kind of how far they're driving six to eight patients a day. We have a community paramedic in Barron County of Northwest Wisconsin, which is a very rural area. And we have community paramedics here in Rochester and Austin, Albert Lee and Southeast Minnesota. So kind of smaller towns or or bigger cities. And, you know, we have a team of six community paramedics right now working and it would take a lot more to help everyone. But if we really identify the right patients who need our care We can do a lot. And I think another unique power of community paramedics is that there are ambulance agencies and providers all over the country in places where there even may not be primary care physicians and definitely in places where there's no endocrinologist. And if we can really empower EMTs and paramedics to become community paramedics and deliver that level of care, I think that would be game-changing. I think the biggest reason why that hasn't happened is that insurance isn't paying for it. So that's why community paramedicine is really part of a broader system where the hospital is paying for it or the ambulance service is paying for it. So if we want models like this to be successful, payers have to evolve as as new delivery models become available and have to reimburse them. It's highly cost effective, it's highly effective. And I think it helps support our patients but it's definitely doable. We just need to continue thinking outside the box on how to make it happen.
0: And they sound to be even a better resource, the, the paramedics, compared to telehealth and other apps which we talk for patients. Uh...
1: We stood up our program in the summer of 2020, right in the, uh, in the middle of COVID. And our CPs were really the main source of care for a lot of these patients who were kind of quarantining at home in order not to get COVID. So I think there's absolutely a role for telehealth. But at the same time, if telehealth identifies a problem, someone has to go to the patient and engage them and help them. And I think that's where the power of these technology enabled systems come in, because we can all work together to help our patients so that we deliver the right level of care to the right patient at the right time, the right place by the right member of their multidisciplinary team. So it's not a one size fits all approach. And it's not a kitchen sink approach. It's an individualized patient-centered approach that we give people the care they need at that particular time. And we change it as their needs change.
0: The physicians and the hospital model is probably a very small model for what you're describing. The village Mm -hmm. would include advocacy, legislations, insurance agents, paramedics, and of course, education. Mm-hmm. but the social determinants of health becomes a big one with poverty disparity everywhere um, but there's some additional research on disparity which is more than just uh, the despair about our modern medicine that we do too much it's all about us uh, it's all so absorbing for physicians it's not as much for patients so there's a section of our population who have never been in, in initially not been included in the studies the Blacks, Hispanics and others in the past and now only now we are opening up the study to include uh, these populations and they have had reasonably reason to suspect some of the data that has been published in literature saying maybe this data does not apply to us because we were not represented in the studies. Uh, What is happening in the field of just general clinical research, health science research, comparative research to improve modern science and what we are going to use in future?
1: it's a big problem. Um, I think both because we've been excluding so many people from benefiting from clinical trials, both by through participation in them and from having the evidence on how best to treat different diseases like in their populations. And I think it's great that I think it's being increasingly recognized. And there's definitely a lot of effort that's being done, I think more needs to be done, but the right, but, you know, at least for our research, the things that we're doing is twofold. So one, I actually like engaging patients as patient investigators and stakeholders to really inform what we should be doing and think so that we don't let our blind spots influence the research. And I found that to be very helpful. And I kind of selfishly tap some of my patients actually to help us and say what they need and how can we do this better? And I think also uh, by making sure that there's low barriers to participation in clinical trials and that we strive in trials to include populate patient, like populations that are representative of our country, of our patients. And that's through enrolling more underrepresented minority populations and women, including women of childbearing age who are often excluded. Uh, making sure that study teams and investigators are diverse and are respectful and mindful and aware of just working with different individuals. So I think that's really important, but that can't happen without improving the trust between patients and the scientific community. I think that's why it's so important for clinicians and for researchers to really be a part of the community that they serve, to have that level of trust because I don't why would patients or people participate in a, in a trial if they don't trust that they will be one, treated appropriately and fairly in the trial, and then also they will benefit from what the trial finds. So I think as we work to improve the diversity and inclusion in our trials and in our healthcare system. We also need to work on rebuilding that trust and having that as a foundation for everything that we do, both in research and in clinical practice.
0: The COVID pandemic has shown how excited we get with infectious diseases, Uh, but this is non-infectious, non-communicable disease, diabetes. I think the number of patients worldwide, if you think about the millions of patients, are probably similar, if not more, to the number of patients who've been affected by COVID. And while COVID did get a big name and big noise, uh, we don't seem to raise that degree of excitement when it comes to diabetes, because it's non-communicable, non-infectious. Yet the burden of illness, uh, it's a lifelong burden with money, social determinants of health, how we do studies, how we do research. Uh, there is, of course, no vaccine which which can come, which can change it. So yeah. its it becomes a bigger, bigger problem than any infectious disease which we know of. And hopefully, these things will be taken in the future. Any last words for all of our audience, Dr. McCoy?
1: Thank you so much for, for this opportunity, I think, to share our work and what kind of our teams have been doing. I think the biggest thing that I really hope that all of you as clinicians really take away is to see the person behind the diabetes because it's just one of the things that they're dealing with. And they really, no matter how it may look, I think our patients are working really hard and it's a very hard disease to live with that affects all aspects of their life. And I think often what it takes to help our patients live well with diabetes is just helping them live well, addressing their diabetes distress and the barriers to care will improve their health outcomes. It's really about getting to know the person. And that's the most rewarding and the hardest part sometimes of of what we do.
0: And what we really know from clinical practice is just not only the person suffering from diabetes, but in a way, his entire family Mm -hmm. uh, shares the burden of his or her illness. So it's a it's a shared responsibility of the family uh, when they go with this economic or just the disease burden. I thank you uh, tremendously for your. Uh, outstanding work. I mean, you are one of our top researchers and I, I just wish that your research leads to further doors being opened and much more help because a lot more work needs to be done in this area. So today we've been talking about diabetes research by, with Professor Rosanita McCoy. I hope ladies and gentlemen, you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic uh, talk today. Uh, please subscribe, stay healthy and stay safe. And we'll see you back next week with another edition of uh, Mayo Clinic Podcast.